Mintenburn, the academic analysis of blockchain and other technologies in the decentralized digital economy. I'm your host, Kelsey Navin. We are tuning in from the RMIT University Blockchain Innovation Hub to bring you expert guests and test frontier ideas. Today is a slightly different format as uh, we're able to share uh, a recording from a reading group called the Digital Ethics ethnography and blockchain reading group which has just kicked off now this was co-organized uh by myself with the support of rmit and the center for excellence in automated decision making and society uh and in particular ellie rennie uh along with tara merck from blockchain gov and sent from metagov uh a distributed uh community of, of researchers in um in online governance and so uh this is a once a, once a month series where uh, we're using the Mintenburn platform to help share out the conversation. Uh, and so with many thanks to Wasim Alcindi, who will uh, be able to introduce himself uh, as uh, the recording plays, um, I'm really pleased to uh, share this and look forward to people's feedback. So without further ado, to the recording of the Digital Ethnography in Blockchain and Governance reading group number one. Yeah, so maybe um, just to be mindful of everybody's time, we can kick off. And I just wanted to start because um, obviously this is our first session. So welcome, everybody, and uh, thanks for joining. Um, and I just want to begin by giving a little bit of a background um, around why we're we doing this. So um, this ethnographic research and, and blockchain reading group was um, started by Kelsey um, of RMIT University, Cent of Metagov and myself um, with Blockchain Gov. So it's kind of like a collaborative um, project. And essentially what we saw in the space and also with a lot of support from, from Ellie Rennie, um, also in RMIT, but what we saw in the space was that a lot of people are trying to make sense, especially also of governance dynamics happening in and around the blockchain space. And um, that in, in very diverse and, and various forms of writing, especially ethnographic research has proved um, tremendously useful in uncovering some of the, you know, like emerging cultures and norms and practices as they are evolving. Um, we think this is interesting, but we think this is tricky because blockchain communities, of course, um, exist in this, in this strange environment that is both online and offline. They're mediated by, by um, community norms, but also by these peer-to-peer -peer technologies that that can sometimes be quite tricky to change. Um, so through this reading group, we thought we would just start an initiative to bring together people who are already conducting ethnographic research in the blockchain space or are interested to learn more about it. Um, we want to create this group for the first reason being so that everybody gets, gets an opportunity to to get to know each other, um, get to familiarize each other with, with the work that everybody is doing, and also be exposed to the, the diversity of different methods um, and forms of writing that are taking place in the space. Um, ideally, we hope that by sharing these, um, these learnings and or these, these papers and discussing them together, we can arrive at a better understanding for ourselves of how we want to conduct ethnographic research in the space and also um, become familiar with some of the more novel ethnographic methods that are um, evolving and emerging to, to kind of like grasp the space as it exists online, offline, and in the protocol sense. 
Um, so the structure of these sessions is going to be um, that they last approximately one hour. A new idea that we've now had is to record them and actually produce them and publish them in form of a podcast so that people can, can benefit um, despite not being online for the call. Um, for each session, we are going to send out a, a proposed reading that ideally everybody has um, had a chance to take a look at before the call. Um, however, we're also going to try and summarize it at the beginning of each session and then invite a discussant, which today is going to be Wasim Al-Sindi here on the call, um, whose text we will be talking about, and uh, to kind of ask these people who have engaged in, in various forms of research, including ethnographic type of research in the industry, um, about how, how they do it, the challenges, the kind of learnings that they take from it, and um, just to arrive at a better shared understanding. Um, yeah, so for this session... Kelsey sent and myself sent, who unfortunately uh, cannot be here today, have prepared some questions, but I'd love to encourage anybody from the audience to just jump in because really this is a place for all of us to learn and we're just trying to make sure there is enough uh, to talk about, which no doubt there will be. Um, so yeah, without further ado, should I um, start by just briefly summarizing um, this text that we're going to talk about today and then and then, Wasim, we can maybe jump in more into your background and, and you know, how you came about doing that and um, lead into the discussion. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. So, so the article that we're looking at today was um, a piece written by Wasim for the MIT uh, Technological Law Review Journal, um, a relatively new journal out in the space that Wasim is also involved in leading and setting up. Um, and this piece in particular looks at um, governance in the blockchain sphere. It's supposed to be a multi-part article. We look specifically at the first one uh, dealing with Bitcoin. And the core question that this article asks is, um, is kind of trying to evaluate um, the, the use of uh, technological solutions in order to overcome social challenges in governance as they um, evolve in crypto. And the first case here is, is Bitcoin. Um, the article starts off, I'm going to call it an article. It's, it's really a, a more um, dynamic piece of writing than, than a straightforward research article. I still find it quite dense, but um, very enjoyable. So, so please add any additional comments and, uh, and remarks later. It starts out by reviewing um, governance through the ages a little bit where um, the first question of governance, governance ideally is, is the process by which we, uh, as a community, arrive at um, decision-making about our resources and, and stuff that we want to do together. Um, but the big question here is always this first decision question. So how um, do we make a decision about how we're going to make a decision? Um, and also importantly, who gets to make this decision? And uh, really that this first decision problem and question is where the need for explicit govern governance structures always emerges and uh, is, is quite salient. So um, Wasim, you wrote this article out of Greece, uh, as, I, as I took it, and you kind of start drawing on um, Plato and Aristotle, then the, the old Greek philosophers to try and understand how we might fill this, this explicit governance need that arises in the, in the first decision problems. Um, 
Plato put it uh, in, in five different ways. He said there could be an aristocracy, uh, democracy, oligarchy, democracy, or tyranny um, to fill this kind of void. And uh, interestingly, of course, from today's perspective is that we, um, we kind of default towards the democratic view, but in Plato's understanding and also in the understanding of John Stuart Mill, um, you know, democracy was really just one step above tyranny because as Plato presented these, he, it was also like a, a ranking in terms of preferences for which would be best. Um, so John Stuart Mill really says that democracy is nothing but the tyranny of, of the majority. Um, this is, of course, assuming that uh, democracy is just a simple majority rule. Um, so what I take from the article is that you kind of argue that for a democracy to be a little bit more than just one step above tyranny, what we need is this like system of checks and balances to, to um, not have a, a tyranny of the majority, um, number one, and also a form of constitutional um, sort of safeguards that will guarantee that no, no one party amasses too much power by kind of defying uh, the democratic principles themselves. So with this sort of background from the ancient Greek times, uh, you turn to apply these concepts to crypto governance using Bitcoin in particular. Um, that section starts out with um, looking at how Bitcoin's governance structure actually works and kind of refuting the idea that some people have presented that that Bitcoin itself with its miners and developers and users and business infrastructure ecosystem resembles any form of like democratic system with checks and balances and constitutional safeguards as we know it to, today. Um, this kind of understanding would be something like anybody running a node is like the executive branch, the, the miners or the judiciary, the devs or the Senate and, um, you know, the business, business uh, ecosystem is kind of the house of representatives through which users can voice their opinions. Uh, this all doesn't hold for various reasons. One very prominent one being that there is nothing that guarantees that, for example, a developer doesn't also run a node and engage in mining activities plus run, you know, some sort of company exploiting this protocol on the side. Um, so in reality, what you observe and describe throughout the article is that really the, the question that we have about the first decision. So who makes rules about how rules are made, um, how rules are made, the ultimate process then becomes enshrined in the protocol. Of course, that's kind of the blockchain thinking of things. How this works in reality is a lot of times that developers um, deliberate on decisions very much off chain. So through, through um, mediums like the Bitcoin mailing list, the Bitcoin improvement proposals, um, this type of thing. And that you've observed that it's kind of, it's very important for them to maintain this distinction of insiders and outsiders. So only very, very few people who, the, who they are and how they become that uh, is, is uh, not explained in the article, but uh, they're the inside and they get to decide who can join the inside and take part in these deliberations and actually um, have an effective voice in that sense. And then the second part in reality is, is the miners and the mining pools kind of enforcing or signaling their, their agreement to certain decisions through, through a signaling process. And that this process very easily becomes what John Stuart Mill was calling the tyranny of the majority because it's a very simple majority type of thinking. So if you have very large mining pool providers that speak to each other, you know, they, they uh, essentially get a very strong 
um, say in the in the decision making about how decisions should be made on the protocol. Um, other stakeholders, you argue, are kind of left with limited um, options to voice or to exit, um, drawing on this Hirschman's um, framework. Voice um, in the community context is often done on Twitter. <laughs> um, Twitter being in itself a very limited form of a, of a public sphere, if you want to call it that, um, just because of the fact that you can't tweet very many characters at a time and the sentiment on Twitter is not really conductive to having like a constructive and rational sort of debate about, um, about these types of topics. So this is a limited option for users. And the other option being exit um, in the blockchain context, of course, forking uh, is also not ideal um, because it really like there's this, this kind of uh, dislike of hard forks, especially uh, in blockchain communities, as we think they, they just disintegrate the entire ecosystem um, and, and lead to a failure of, of maybe the overarching goals. Um, you get more specific and kind of like back to the research question in drawing on the example of the Bitcoin scaling debate, um, where you kind of argue, so this question again, like can technological solutions overcome the social challenges that we have in these first decision problems? Uh, arguing no, not really. So the technological solution in this scenario would have been the um, SegWit proposal, um, which was a very complicated technical workaround to solve the simple issue of Bitcoin scaling, like how can we uh, conduct more transactions on this network? Um, and that even though this was, you know, a great technical solution, it still required a lot of off-chain coordination, which is the social challenges part going on um, amongst the developers. So the insiders communicating in their insider sort of mediums, but also between the developers and the miners who then ultimately implemented this. And um, that, you know, this entire process just proved to be, to be uh, very inefficient and uh, inefficient, not only in the way that it was time consuming, but also that it still resulted in a split of the network um, what is known today as Bitcoin Cash. So um, this is what I took from the article and my, my summation of it. So uh, ultimately the answer is no, technological solutions do not, um, in your understanding of the Bitcoin network, at least provide uh, any relief for the social challenges um, that these networks face today. Um, and yeah, Anything to add or? Let's say not yet. Like, you know, the future is, is not known to us. So like, who knows? Uh, maybe perhaps the Bitcoiners will find a way to coordinate gracefully uh, next time there's a, there's a matter up for debate. And what I would say is that um, the example we talk about in the article of segregated witness or like, you know, doing this kind of um, uh, intricate change in order to facilitate off-chain scaling rather than increasing the size of the blocks and doing it in this much more uh, direct way. <clears throat> That was contentious. So there were different schools of thought about the best way to go in terms of developing the technical architecture for Bitcoin. Uh, whereas you'll find that um, in the near future, there are going to be some discussions about much less controversial changes. So, for example, um, uh, two come to mind, which is like uh, uh, you now hear this discourse about quantum computing. Like, you know, the number of qubits of a quantum computer increasing. And because of the way the quantum computing works, it might then lead to ways that the cryptography used in Bitcoin can break sooner than we expect. 
So there's a whole bunch of people working on post-quantum signature schemes. You would think that would be uncontroversial to soft fork that in, to have this kind of post-quantum uh, feature. Uh, however, recently, somebody cracked a bunch of uh, state-of-the-art post-quantum signature schemes with a very weak non-quantum computer. So like, so the quantum stuff is actually weak to classical attacks. And now, so the, then the you know, um, black and whiteness of this upgrade comes into question. There's another one which I think is even less, probably even less controversial, which is, um, so Bitcoin and other crypto systems, they're essentially like centralized clocks or timestamping systems. And so the, the way that Bitcoin keeps time is through a digital, like an integer number called Unix time. Uh, it's like a 32-bit string. And uh, it will run out of address space at some point, a bit like when Y2K happened. We had this kind of uh, overflows of two-digit two digit, two numbers at the turn of the century. Uh, so in 2106, the Bitcoin clock will run out of address space. So you'd think that it would be uncontroversial to upgrade that, um, but we'll see, I guess. Tara, thank you for that extremely eloquent um, synthesis of the piece um, and Wasim for joining us. Just to backtrack for a second, um, Wasim, we're really grateful to have you um, for this call. You have one of my favourite voices in blockchain podcast sphere and your own very accomplished podcast, um, Zero X Salon. Um, could you just share with people a bit about yourself, uh, your main areas of research, and then um, how you conducted this study? Like what's your history or experience in the Bitcoin community? Because these days it's kind of rare in academic circles. Most people are familiar with Ethereum having come um, after and, and maybe being more accessible in some ways. Yeah, sure. Thanks, uh, Kelsey. Like, uh, thanks, Kelsey Tarantet, for the invite and for being here, putting it together. I'm looking forward to to the rest of the the future uh, editions as well. Um, so yeah, a bit about my background. I started off in science, so I got a PhD in like chemical chemistry, physics kind of stuff. Um, so I came from very kind of um, quantitative uh, world, which had nothing to do with ethnography um, or any kind of human stories. We were manipulating photons and electrons to peer behind, peer beyond the, the veil of the quantum uh, shroud, if you like. Um, and so, yeah, I um, I uh, did all the academic stuff in my 20s. Um, I was kind of at the, at the boundaries of disciplines between chemistry and physics. So I was doing, for example, photophysics, astrochemistry, um, chemical biology, and, and so on. So I kind of um, started to navigate between disciplines and started to learn how to how to do that. Um, and you know, you trip up against some of the tensions. For example, there's different academic traditions between fields, uh, different uh, languages, phraseologies, um, and those are all the things that stop work. You know, um, uh, researchers in different faculties or different departments from from working together. And I suppose the other thing that's related to that is if you're inside academia. Most of the incentives for you, like your career, like kind of inside your faculty, inside your lane, inside your episteme. And so you have a bit more of a um, kind of you're a bit more incentivized by the academic system uh, to kind of stay within a, a particular discipline or a school rather than doing this more kind of like horizontal uh, work. It's a bit less legible, I suppose. Hopefully things are changing um, now. But yeah, so parallel to that, I was also doing... Um, like music and, and arts uh, stuff ends up um, on the discourse and curation side of uh, European art scene. And it was through that that I found crypto in, um, I found Bitcoin more specifically in 2013. So I was touring the States with uh, some musicians and uh, we went to visit a friend of theirs 
and he was an intern at, my, at Intel. And he opened his closet in his shoebox in Santa Clara and showed us a Bitcoin mining machine that he built out of GPUs from the clo uh, stationary closet at Intel. And uh, he was pretty annoyed with Bitcoin at this point uh, because the power in California was, was expensive even back then. And so he was losing money hand over fist, fist running this uh, mining rig, making these uh, ostensibly worthless coins. Um, and so he wasn't that uh, into it. Um, but what I saw in it uh, was, uh, so my background is like I'm from Iraq. And my family left just before I was born. And uh, they kind of left with nothing because there's all these political and economic complications with the situation there and leaving. And so the idea of Bitcoin immediately spoke to me when it was like this uncensorable, unseizable, digital native means of value transfer, the thing that the bad people can't take from you. Um, and so that's kind of, that was my entry point into this. Um, and so I went down that rabbit hole first as a kind of an aficionado, as a user. And then I started, you know, going deeper, like kind of, I guess, closing the loop back to my old academic uh, days, doing kind of para-academic research. I set up like an independent uh, research house called Parallel Industries. And uh, the first serious work I tried, attempted to do, I was in a, a business school in Scotland at the time, was uh, to write some interdisciplinary papers about forks. So I was observing these fork wars that we just, you know, we intimated, uh, the one in Bitcoin that led from the scaling debate that led to this uh, schism into Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin. And even before that, uh, with like the, the DAO, which uh, was the first kind of big project on Ethereum, um, which I, th I guess most people might be familiar with uh, by now, did not go according to plan. And two Ethereum, two progeny came out of that uh, disagreement as well. So I was trying to study these forks uh, because I thought like all these, um, you know, these, these twin networks that came out of a common origin, because I thought they're the closest thing we would have to make a direct comparisons. And I was trying to do kind of data science. Thing. So between data science and epistemology, um, which I didn't realize at the time, I thought I was doing computer science. And I was sending my papers to computer science conferences, and they were not very receptive to them. Um, so that was my first inkling that I wasn't, uh, you know, kind of a cut and dry disciplinary researcher, uh, where I couldn't really find a place to put these uh, these papers. Obviously, the scene has developed a lot in, in the in the years since, and there are much more, a much wider, a broader. A pluralist range of, of kinds of works going on. Um, yeah, so that was like um, the start of it. I then spent uh, several uh, years working on a, I guess, like a conceptual framework for, for like an epist epistemic framework for tokens called token space. And the, the idea of that was to produce some kind of um, legible um, representation of a way that, you know, the design considerations of a network of a token uh, could go into changing the uh, overarching characteristics of the uh, assets that contain within the network. And we were looking at things like um, how much of a money an asset is, how much of a commodity some, an asset is, and how much of a security an asset is. So we were then trying to build this kind of abstract design space uh, which with which we could change, for example, the consensus mechanism of a network or the issuance schedule of a token and uh, try to uh, get an intuitive feel for how that might um, influence the perceived characteristics of the of the tokens and you could see how that could be used by like for example regulators on one side uh, asset designers um on the other um, and so that was like very yeah interdisciplinary work i was trying to connect together this kind of the socio-political side of things the economic side of things and the the technical side of things um and then uh, yeah fast forward a bit i guess i got a, a job at um, the mit media lab to found their crypto economic systems journal um, which was like explicitly interdisciplinary mission at the very interdisciplinary uh, media lab. And the, the goal was to kind of try and cement 
this work in cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology as a uh, nascent academic discipline. And we we're trying to bring together the people from cryptography and computer science, uh, from uh, policy, from um, you know, economics, uh, math, uh, complex systems, network science, so from all kinds of places. And um, uh, that's, again, like where I really felt the, the need for some kind of um, uh, epistemic translation between all these different fields so that we could find a way, like a common language for people to speak and a way for them to collaborate and, and communicate together. Um, and then, um, yeah, more recently in the pandemic, I started an event series in this arts organization um, that, uh, that mentioned earlier, Zurex Salon. And uh, that is like an explicitly interdisciplinary um, uh, endeavor. And the idea is we're kind of critically interrogating topics around digital culture, all kinds of stuff. We have a community, uh, we talk about stuff, research stuff, uh, write stuff, uh, make art, uh, and so on. Um, and so that is all powered by um, this kind of like long back catalogue of uh, you know, inter interdisciplinary work, I, I suppose. Some of which is, I guess, if you, when looking back, it's quite ethnographic in its scope and focus, and some of it less so. So I would say I'm kind of ethnographic adjacent or, or something like that. An epistemic trespasser, as uh, you call it, on one of your episodes of Zero X Salon. Uh, super interesting. One thing that um, that both Tara and you touched on was this idea that there's social challenges in blockchain governance. And I kind of wanted to resurface that, uh, not really as an explicit question, but it's something that I sort of struggle with when I come in and I look at the social dynamics of decentralized technologies because you end up looking at uh, the social struggles and challenges by nature of doing kind of qualitative empirical work. Uh, and I've had, I've had people say to me, so, like, you know, at the end, one of the things published, like, so there's nothing wrong with the technology. The problem is with the social stuff. And it's like this embedded idea that the challenges are still the social thing. Um, how do you go about navigating that or about translating your work, I guess, back to the communities with which you are researching? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I think there's some kind of like, there's a loop, there's a feedback loop that, that needs to close for the, the work to kind of iterate, develop and, and um, progress gracefully, I suppose. Um, and so in, in the Bitcoin community, people talk about an intersubjective consensus between uh, the network and the people running the code. And like you need kind of like a loop between the uh, between the two for the for the things to go around. I suppose it's 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 a little bit something like that. So we're talking about these you know ostensibly autonomous networks. You know people just download some code, run a you know implement uh, yeah, run some software. They're a node on this network. They talk to others, swap tokens or, or messages or whatever. Um, and so, but yeah, it's humans at the end of the day, or mostly humans these days, uh, using these systems. So it's, I guess it's the tension where the, the rubber meets the road, uh, where the, you know, the user is sat in front of the you know, computer or the you know, device, uh, trying to connect with this uh, network and, uh, you know, speak its language. Um, and so because of that, I think it's probably like, and I, I'd love to hear from uh, all of you because you're far more experienced in digital ethnography itself than, than I am, imagine it presents unique challenges for the ethnographic approaches uh, because the humans using the systems or the, you know, the users themselves are kind of backgrounded by default by their kind of anonymity and pseudonymity in these, in these networks. We often don't know who is on the other side of a address or a transaction or who's doing that mining or, or whatever. 
Um, and so it's, um, it, it's more work to kind of get to the human story. Uh, so for me, I suppose I got to it uh, just by kind of happenstance. So I was in the space, I was writing papers, I was going to uh, conferences, mostly Bitcoin ones, but like other, other uh, the wider crypto space as well. And you know, so I basically kind of became a member of the Bitcoin community. I was quite pro-Bitcoin uh, back in those days. I'm a little bit more balanced now, I say. Um, and uh, yeah, so I was in the Bitcoin community, going around the lecture circuit, giving talks about these projects, the fork thing, the epistemology thing. I was developing kind of um, Bitcoin wallet um, uh, prototypes for migrants and refugees as well, kind of like a decolonial project, I suppose, a few years ago. And so I was touring around all these conferences, trying to find uh, ways to um, fund this work and, and, and get on with it. And I uh, didn't succeed in that. Uh, Bitcoiners are quite stingy in the bear markets, it turns out. They don't really want to fund stuff. And they don't like printing tokens, so they don't like to fund things that way. So it's more difficult. Um, but so I got into the community as a peer. I was kind of accepted as a peer in it. So I was giving talks at, you know, the premier Bitcoin technical conferences. And then I suppose going to work at the Mighty Digital Currency Initiative was then like a big stamp of legitimacy, where you're like working in, at the time, the place that funded the most Bitcoin core developers, kind of like, you know, the inner sanctum of chosen developers, including the people that had the uh, the commit keys to the Bitcoin core GitHub repo. So literally the kind of the janitors or the you know sentinels of the Bitcoin software of the protocol as it's implemented. Um, and so, yeah, then I felt that I was very much on the inside of this thing and you get a kind of a different perspective. So before that, I was just an independent researcher uh, sort of out nowhere, not really knowing anybody, just going to these conferences to get a feel for things. Um, and then all of a sudden I was kind of inside the, the community running conferences and, and uh, starting a journal and stuff. And so that helped a lot being kind of like proximate to all of the actual kind of, uh, I guess, like the meat space or the human instantiations of this dis decentralized scene. And then you get at the conferences, you, I'm sure you all know how it is. You go to the conference, you meet people, you talk, uh, you know, by the water cooler or, or over a cup of coffee. And then the stories start to come, the stories you don't read on Twitter, the stories that cannot be said in public. Um, and then you start to get the real kind of um, the juicy, the juicy stuff, which I'd love to talk to you more about um, if uh, if it comes up. And this is actually beyond Bitcoin, like because, we, we, you know, Bitcoin was the linchpin of everything, uh, but there'll be the altcoins um, or the, you know, all, all the other currencies were kind of people's bread and butter. So even the people on Twitter, that are like the rabid Bitcoin maximalists, the ones that say that everything else is trash, half of them, or maybe even more, are actually funded by the things that they're trash talking. Uh, they just don't say it in public. So it's very interesting to see the kind of preference, falsification, I guess, between public and private uh, spheres. So I, I think one thing that you just touched upon is uh, particularly interesting for this idea of ethnographic research in these communities. Um, the understanding of you started out more from a research like outside perspective, but, you know, got active, started your own projects, became, you know, attended the conferences, met the people, became part of that community in a very core way and insider way. Um, and I guess a lot of ethnographic research, you know, is uh, it does a great job at, uh, at documenting the context also in which uh, things take place, which can only be done by actively also participating in those communities. And um, maybe just like out of uh, interest, two questions. How would you say this, like your own positionality, uh, like throughout your research career uh, in cryptocurrencies has influenced, you know, your writing? And also how do you... Um, you know, 
what are what are kind of like the difficulties that you then have to navigate as an inside member but also a researcher wearing those two different different hats that you know tends to be the case with ethnographic research yeah a good question yeah it's um it's it's complicated and, and tough like i think it's maybe more so in this in this space because one of the other things are specific to the blockchain space especially with like things like bitcoin and, and ethereum is that um there are speculative assets embedded within these networks um and so then incentives get aligned in very powerful ways uh, and so people um there's ideology and there's incentives and then when those two things mix it can get very um uh you know fervent uh, i would say um so yeah in terms of my own positionality i think i've kind of gone almost like full circle so i found the stuff when it was a science experiment I was like hopeful, but critical, skeptical of it. So I didn't jump in with like, you know, both head first. I was more like just watching. There was actually several, like a couple, uh, one and a half market cycles happened. Like there was a big boom in 2013, 14. Then Mt. Gox collapsed. Then everyone said Bitcoin's dead. Um, and then there's this arguably the biggest bear market of, most hardest bear market of Bitcoin's history. And uh, people, everyone was saying Bitcoin was dead at that point. Um, but um, I noticed blocks were still coming, transactions were still getting confirmed. And then I noticed that I thought, well, this is actually kind of like a cockroach. It's something very uh, resilient. And that in itself is, is very interesting. I think that resilience like attracts a certain kind of people. Um, and so like I was also attracted to that resilience. And so I suppose I was, yeah, I mean, like um, Kelsey just brought up the, the idea of digital gold in the um, in the chat. Uh, and this is, yeah, this is the, the kind of the, the touchstone moment of the digital gold narrative, I'd say. So we shifted from this idea of infrastructural mutualism very early in Bitcoin when it became apparent that the tokens and the block space were really like the precious resources here. And we ended up with this kind of more speculative uh, play on scarcity. Um, and so I was I was fully signed up, like uh, after a few years, like I was really, you know, banging the drum for Bitcoin. But I suppose I was doing it in a way, if I'm honest, that's probably time to be honest. Um, if I'm honest, I was giving the veneer of an objective researcher that was trying to treat everything fairly, but I was like secretly rooting for Bitcoin. And I think you could probably read that if you look back at the papers of the stuff I wrote between 17 and 19 critically, you probably noticed that. Um, and I would say I'm much more neutral uh, now. I try not to take moral arguments, moral positions. I kind of find it very hard to kind of stimulate a conversation if you approach from a particular you know, uh, perspective. Uh, but what I would say is that... Um, Looking at things in terms of costs and benefits is quite helpful. And so, like we know, I already mentioned the benefits of uh, things like centralized you know, pseudo monetary technologies. Uh, nobody can stop you from using them. The community can take them away from you if you use them properly. You can hide them, you can conceal them, and so on. Uh, but then the costs, particularly of Bitcoin, especially now that Ethereum has moved away from proof of work, we're like just talking about like the cost of the ecological externalities and implications of the resource thirst of, of Bitcoin and its proof of work, that is increasing and the costs aren't increasing at the same rate. So at some point, like my, I don't know what exactly when it was, but my, my, my perspective flipped. And what was a bit problematic was, was that at the time I was working at the Bitcoin Research Group at the MIT Digital Currency Initiative, which at the time, again, as we said earlier, was the largest concentration of Bitcoin open source development uh, you know, at that moment. It's more, much more distributed uh, now. Uh, the, the benefits of a bear market is lots of uh, infrastructural funding uh, came in. Lots of developers got supported by, um, you know, uh, financial companies or infrastructural companies that are building out um, applications. Um, but yeah, so I was very pro the small blocks. I was very much on the side of the kind of the BTC side of that fork. 
I didn't think big blocks was a good idea. To me, it seemed like it was adding more lanes to the highway. And like, you know, we all see what those pictures of LA when they keep adding more lanes to the highway. Does it get better? No, it gets worse. People drive more. Um, and so that was the kind of the rationale, which is actually kind of like a kind of slightly naive rationale, I guess. Uh, but the small blocks side also had the credible computer scientists on it. And I was kind of, um, I suppose, because I have this academic background, when I see smart people, I'm like, oh, they know what's going on, the smart people, I'll follow them. Um, and so that naturally gravitated towards, uh, I suppose you could say, the kind of MIT Blockstream kind of philosophy, which was small blocks, and then tried to do off-chain scaling with either side chains, kind of like, uh, you know, uh, child chains, other blockchains subservient to the Bitcoin main one, uh, or um, payment channels, just kind of like opening a tab, a bar, and doing a bunch of transactions off-chain, and then settling it later, and actually used to share an office with uh, Tad Stryger at MIT, who was the co-inventor of the Poon Dryger channels, which is the Lightning Network. And, you know, at that time, everyone was like, Lightning Network is the panacea to solve everything in Bitcoin. Uh, we will scale to five, eight billion people using this. Um, however, you know, I'm sitting there next to the guy that co-invented it. And he's like, it's not that great. I've started working on something else. And I was like, oh, right. So the guy that made it, it doesn't even have that much uh, sort of pride in this thing. I mean, he liked it. He thought it was good, a useful solution, but not the, the solution to everything. Whereas in, on the Bitcoin small block side, people were saying lightning fixes everything. And that is like, it was a drastic oversimplification. And so now I see it as a bit more of a shades of gray kind of situation where there isn't like actually a great way to scale Bitcoin. And we end up with the same kind of a lot of trade-offs, a lot of complications at the result from the relatively primitive and, and nature of Bitcoin, its lack of functionality. Um, but yeah, so I've shifted like over the years as, uh, you know, in terms of my, um, you know, affinity towards Bitcoin and also in terms of uh, like my preferences for architectural choices. And the same thing happened with Ethereum as well. So in 2016, I was in the coders law camp. I was like, don't change the network. Uh, these things should run as we, you know, created them, which is kind of like the Bitcoin values. Um, and so it's fun funnily enough in the DAO uh, schism, we ended up with Ethereum Classic, which continued on the original trajectory and Ethereum, which, um, you know, changed the rules to um, enact what they thought was a, what the community thought on balance was a more ethical outcome, uh, taking uh, coins away from the exploiter. Um, and so I was writing these fork papers that we mentioned earlier, the forkonomy and, and so on. And I was writing relatively charitably about Ethereum Classic. And so people from that network read the papers and uh, you know, very quickly I got invited to go speak at their conference. So I, my first actual invited lecture in the space was uh, in Korea. Uh, when I went to speak about the fork stuff, Ethereum Classic. And then I started to realize, actually, there's not much of a community here. I was in this, like, five-star hotel. I saw ballroom set up, chandeliers, crystal chandeliers up there. Nobody, nobody there. Um, like a billionaire funding like that has an investment vehicle related to the network. Uh, some devs, some miners that were funded by that entity. And um, that was about it. Not much else. People translating my talk into Korean and nobody else. Um, and so... It was interesting to see like um, the evolution of these kind of little, it's like a little ideological playground, almost these forks. You have two different kind of worldviews and you see how they propagate as they, as they diverge. But looking at the communities, like coming back to the, the ethnographic aspect, going to the Ethereum Classic conference was this unique insight into the, you know, the constitution of that, well, non-community, I guess you could say. And what was even uh, more interesting, I'll, I'll stop talking in a minute, but the, the, about ETC was, I predicted that Ethereum Classic would suffer the longer that Ethereum delayed the move to proof of stake. 
who had suffered more, like thermodynamic attacks, mining attacks, 51% attacks, and so on. And sure enough, the list of things that I warned them about, front-running, uh, gas arbitrage, 51% attacks, mining centralization, uh, they all happened in the, that bear market of 1819. So they called me into the community post-mortem call as they're trying to work out what to do after somebody did a 51% attack and rewrote huge segments of the history of the network because it was so cheap to rent the hash rate to do that. And there were 10 people in this call. That was that was the community call was 10 people. And so I was like, okay, this is interesting, but like not what I came here for. <laughs> Wow, that's fascinating. It just goes to show, um, yeah, how how crucial that that access is for any kind of, um, especially qualitative research. Uh, and I also like the idea of, um, you know, doing the observation, like what's happening on Twitter and what are people saying, and then doing the meet space, like go and experience and feel and see for yourself. Um, I like what you mentioned before, too, about kind of some of your go-to frameworks, like, um, you know, costs, for example, or opportunities and losses as, as kind of like a go-to analytical framework. Um, I wanted to come back to what you mentioned about um, the juicy stuff. And I kind of have this idea in my mind when I'm setting out on a research project of, um, and it's something I was like very much trained to do. And Ellie Rennie is one of my um, co-supervisors. So shout out to her. Um, what are some of the things that you look for when you study blockchain networks? Like what constitutes the juicy stuff for you um, when you're setting out? Because obviously knowing what to look for is the, basis and the foundation of like a good versus a you know not so relevant or timely kind of research undertaking yeah i think probably it's the same sorts of things we look for in the in the in the outside in the real world in the non-cyberspace so we're looking for uh, like uh, tensions or kind of um you know insolubilities asymmetries uh, things like that disparities inequalities um and yeah so for me that's one of the most interesting and important things to look for. Um, sometimes the harder to spot. That's, I guess, one of the, I guess that's one of the challenges uh, we have in blockchain networks that we have kind of opportunities for abstraction and obfuscation. So you can kind of hide. If you're doing something that's kind of would be perceived as unfair, you can kind of like take steps to conceal that or hide that. And that, you know, it could be by virtue of the fact that we're using these kind of pseudonymous addresses. So we could look like we're a network of agents and community, but it's actually just one like controlling entity or, or something like that. And I'll give you an example, which um, again, I haven't really written up, but it will go in the future column at some point. I mentioned it a bit in the um, No Gods, No Masternodes uh, talk, uh, which I think got circulated, which is about Dash and PIVX, these masternode coins, pre-Ethereum pre masternode coins. So they had these very primitive DAOs. These were kind of like proto-DAOs, I guess you could say. They Like a portion of the block rewards, they were either proof of work, proof of stake, or uh, hybrid or pure proof of stake. So a portion of the block rewards from every block would go into a treasury that was managed by DAO and a whole bunch of the, the voters that had the voting rights on where that treasury would go. Um, they were running these things called masternodes. So they would lock up a bunch of coins as collateral, render them a liquid, a bit like the Ethereum staking nodes these days. Um, and they would do kind of, a, they would engage in activities on the network. They'd have responsibilities like coin mixing uh, for privacy. And in return, they'd get some rewards and get a vote in like a say in what happens to these treasuries. So I was at a Bitcoin conference in 2018 and I met a Dash core developer and uh, I, was, I said to him, I was looking at governance asymmetries and power asymmetries in these networks. And he said, oh my God, thank 
thank goodness somebody's here that will listen to me. Uh, this is what's happening in my network. And uh, so he was like very earnest and very kind of impassioned and wanted to, you know, you could see he really cared. Um, and uh, so basically what was happening was they noticed, the developers noticed a bunch of um, the proposals that were going, that were being uh, put forwards to the DAO that were getting voted through were kind of like not that great, like a bit overpriced, not delivering, kind of like just YouTube videos for marketing or whatever, not that interesting. They were going through. And the good looking ones that were for less money, it seemed like better quality, they were not going through. Um, and then started to notice the hallmarks of a cartel forming, like block by block or like, you know, epoch by epoch in the network. And so what was happening was um, the cartel was voting through the proposals that they controlled and then using that money to buy more Dash, to get more masternodes, to get more votes in the treasury to vote for more of their overpriced proposals. And so this thing was, you're literally watching the thing centralized, turning into a cartel, uh, kind of uh, like a stage by stage. And uh, so that was something I would never have uncovered by myself. I would never have gone that deep into the, the voting analysis of DAO, of Dash. I don't know if any, anybody ever has, um, but because I heard it straight from the horse's mouth, you know, uh, true time-honored uh, ethnographic uh, style, um, that gave me like a, I started writing a book about uh, all of these governance asymmetries, which I never finished. Um, but it was the basis of that no gods, no master notes um, talk. Yeah. Yeah, so true. The amount of times I've had a tip off from someone and I can't um, emphasize enough just the value of, um, the, of those kinds of networks, like even people that will ping you and be like, oh, I know the topic of your research at the moment. Look here at what's happening. <laughs> like this is, you know, this is a thing. Um, that you want to look at. Um, That's great. Design. I mean, like, so we can think of us like uh, detectives and like, you know, detectives, like we are journalists and we live or die on tips and our networks and our contacts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about, just if no one else wants to jump in and I can't see anyone that has unmuted, um, is your work sort of switches between uh, sort of research and analysis and design? And you mentioned before that you had been involved from, you know, early on in, in design of wallets and, and these kinds of things. Um, I have definitely found uh, this as a, as a kind of vortex consuming space um, kind of pulls you in that direction as a researcher as well. And have ended up doing various design um, misadventures, adventures, um, using kind of ethnographic skills in a different way. Um, can you talk more about how kind of your qualitative insights have become relevant to building technological components or vice versa? Yeah, and I suppose like, um, it, again, it's not something that, um, you know, we arrived at intentionally. I was like, I'm going to figure out how to, how these networks work so I can design, help design better ones or, or whatever. Um, it just came kind of as a, or whatever emergent quality of uh, being kind of f focused and concerned with uh, the way these things work and the way the people uh, use them. And so I guess my first real foray into uh, the user journey or the ethnographic you know, side of it uh, was with reaching everyone was this idea of the, the Bitcoin wallet prototypes for, for migrants. And so first then we were trying to think like, you know, to get into the minds of the users and like what their, um, uh, their, their user journeys are. Um, and uh, I'll be honest, I didn't speak to any, like displaced people at the time. So now that I speak to friends that work with stateless refugees and, and displaced people, I'm seeing actually that the way that the, um, the process of migration works is a little bit different than I thought it was. And then you would need to design the system differently 
in order to address or to mitigate against some of the kind of um, concerns or the you know weak points uh, in the system as we designed it. So that I think just goes to show, like I didn't do the ethnographic homework there, and our project would have not been that great as a result. Um, it's just as well it was only a prototype; we never made it. Nobody ever trusted their lives with it. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's it's that made me realise how you know, how important it is. And so, yeah, I think like we like just in general, we need to center the users much more. I think this is still like something that we're not quite there with yet in the blockchain space. Like everything has come from the perspective of uh, technical architects, systems designers, developers being like, well, uh, here's how the machine works. So like, um, you know, user would just stuff the user in this side and uh, see how they get on. And of course, we see these unending technical nightmares uh, with this kind of um these gaps between the, 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 the UX, the user experience that a user is used to and expects and the realities of using a, you know, a decentralized network like a blockchain. Um, so things like your, you know, the kind of time honored idea of using your tokens to buy a coffee and you go to whatever, you know, crypto Starbucks and you tap your wallet there. I think you can actually pay with crypto and Starbucks now, uh, which is crazy to me. Uh, but yes, yeah, so you tap the thing and then it says, oh yeah, just wait there. We have to confirm your, has to, we have to broadcast, it has to get mined, has to get validated. Then it gets confirmed. And people are there like, you know, normally I just tap my card and it's done. And of course there's all these levels of abstraction on payment systems as to, you know, when things get settled and when things get uh, confirmed. Um, but they're very hard to solve in the blockchain space gracefully. Um, and so, um, I was thinking about the example of um, this UBI project, this Experimental Universal Basic Income project called Circles, and um, some of the ameliorations they took because their target users were not crypto people. They were not like developers of Bitcoin and Ethereum. They were trying to reach people like normal people, real people, everyone else, the 99%. And uh, to do that, they had to kind of take some, you know, design choices to kind of smooth over some of these some of these gaps. Uh, so, for example, they run on a, a permissioned sidechain, like it's a proof of authority network. So it's not decentralized, um, but like the, it's performant. And so like the people that are using this thing are probably in a situation where like, you know, decentralization sounds nice, but they need something to actually work so they can eat and do like basic life stuff. Um, and then if there's things like, um, I suppose like there's a few kind of human friendly UX abstractions, like uh, seed phrases for wallets, kind of like... Um, you know, uh, plain, plain language like English or French or Italian or Korean words that you can use to reconstruct a wallet rather than these kind of alpha, alphanumeric uh, strings, uh, which are definitely not human uh, friendly at all. Um, so, yeah, and then things like transaction fees. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it, it's often that thing where you show somebody how this stuff works and then you say, yeah, you need to pay uh, a fee every time you do it. How much is the fee? We don't know. You have to find that out at the time. If you don't pay enough, it doesn't work. And you might not get your money back, uh, but it's great. Um, so you have all of these kind of um, new um, what, uh, things you have to kind of warn or explain or ameliorate, mitigate for the user. Um, and what would be great is if we did a bit more of the kind of user-focused thinking before we designed the systems. And I think that's probably where ethnography can come in by kind of closing a loop with the technical development of these systems at a much earlier stage than is happening now. Because now what we're doing now is uh, we're uh, uh, um, litigating car crashes of the past. Whereas what we could be doing is designing safer vehicles uh, so they don't crash.
I think that's an excellent point. And I'm also still interested to hear more about ideally how that works. Like how do some of us, you know, conducting ethnographic work, how do we make sure that that people designing systems, especially governance systems, um, pay attention? But I'm also seeing in the chat for this um, that you added a plus plus. Um, did you have a question? Yeah, but I don't want to derail the conversation. I think it also went to a very nice place uh, because my question would definitely derail that. <laughs> I'm, I love derailment. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, okay. So, um, yeah, first of all, um, Wasim, I, I really appreciate the, uh, uh, the um, willingness to go horizontal and make all these different connections and being very interdisciplinary and reading the misadventures text um i see something that usually academics don't like at all but i really enjoyed which is making this uh instantaneous connections and just these are uh, name dropping and references and then just leaving it there <laughs> just making all of these uh, connections in a network and at one point it's interesting that you mentioned like transcendental idealism and Kant and this creation of um, the same boundaries between in, uh, inside and outside. Uh, and I would be very interested to actually um, know some more reasoning behind this choice and how do you see this fitting in. And generally about the issue of uh, the construction of membranes uh, in uh, inside communities and in the creation of contentious issues and tensions between them, and if you have noticed some sort of regularity or, or pattern in that, uh, I don't know if I was clear at all, but um, uh. yeah, thank you, Fotis. Yeah, thanks for the comments and the, the question. Um, yeah, I, I, it, it is like a massive can of worms to introduce Kant at four minutes to the hour. Um, but I will just say very briefly that um, one of the things that I've been doing is, um, try, uh, like with, with some colleagues, is trying to use some of the ideas of Kant uh, to try and understand uh, the new kind of temporal regime that blockchains instantiate. Um, that, you know, we can think of Bitcoin as a decentralized clock um, that is not connected to the uh, hours of the day or the time of the year. It's kind of its own new time. And that's one of the reasons why um, scholars of Kant and everything that came after that are very interested in things like Bitcoin and time chain, uh, because in some ways they think it proves Kant right, that we've got this kind of metaphysical fabric now for speculation about uh, time. Uh, so yeah, one of Kant's key moves was to uh, kind of set up this um, transcendental aesthetic of uh, inside and outside uh, with a kind of a hard boundary. And um, we can think of crypto networks like Bitcoin and Ethereum as also kind of having a hard boundary between the inside and the outside, uh, which are regulated by things like cryptographic validation and in Bitcoin's um, case, thermodynamics. Um, and so these are kind of like the, the kind of protective layers, the you know, immune system, I guess, of these networks to make sure the rules get followed and uh, uh, no unexpected uh, stuff comes from outside the network uh, into it. Um, I would say that like the um, the way that these boundaries are enforced seems to be mirrored in the um, political philosophies and the kind of um, social activities of the users. And I think that for me was the most interesting thing to kind of see Bitcoin uh, as this kind of very sort of zero sum 
environment. It's all about scarcity. It's all about burning loads of energy uh, to keep the kind of sanctity of this timeline of the ledger uh, secure so that people know that they've still got their, their stuff. Um, whereas this kind of, so the hard boundary seems to create also in the minds of the adherents also kind of a hard boundary, a resistance to change, an idea of like uh, protecting the inside uh, at the expense of like what is what is outside it. And I think that might be one of the reasons why the Bitcoin community feels so insular, especially from the outside. So I don't know if anybody on the call has ever tried to engage in good faith in, in discourse around Bitcoin with, with people that like Bitcoin. Uh, you often get dismissed out of hand as like, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not from here. Um, and so that is like one of the very easiest uh, ways to do that. And Kelsey, yes, should we, should, we, should we try and squeeze in this very last question? Let's do that. Um, I'm just going to bring it up now. Um, yes, responses from different stakeholder groups. I think that's quite, yeah, quite an interesting one. Uh, thanks, Val, for the for the question. Um, so I found that the uh, developers, particularly in the Bitcoin ecosystem, uh, tended to be um, uh, like quite nice people when you get to know them, uh, but quite conservative, like you know, in in, in many different ways, particularly in the um, like technical philosophy around the network. Um, and so people coming with ideas for changes or improvements or ways that we could use the network differently were kind of usually like brushed aside, uh, I suppose. Um, miners also, I think the miners are quite quite conservative. It's not in their interest to change. Like we see now in Ethereum, um, the miners are just carrying on. Like we've switched away from proof of work, proof of work now, but there's a whole bunch of miners that just carry on on the timeline. Um, so I'd say the users may be a bit more progressive. But then the people with more stake, more skin in the game, I guess you could say, in its Lebian sense, uh, the miners, uh, the developers, they tend to be a bit more entrenched in their attitudes. Thank you for responding to those questions. I guess just to uh, finish us off for this session, uh, what are you currently working on and where can people find and follow you? Yeah, so um, just yeah, just quickly. So um, uh, we're currently doing quite a lot of art activities. So I got this um, with the salon, with the Xerox salon, this uh, EU uh, fellowship called Starts, Science Plus Technology Plus Arts, uh, on the repair, repairing the present theme uh, around blockchain societies. So we've been making this kind of multimodal program of critical engagement around the externalities of proof of work, particularly with Bitcoin. So we wrote a play, satirical play about Bitcoin called The Black Hole of Money, charting 100 years of uh, Bitcoin's past, present, and future. That premiered in a theatre in uh, Denmark last month. And uh, there'll be a video of that uh, getting exhibited in the ZKM, the media art place in Karlsruhe, next month, at which point we'll make it uh, public. We're next week, go I'm going to Milan in two days uh, for an exhibition where we open, uh, where we uh, present um, interactive storytelling environment, also about Bitcoin, like a choose-your-own-adventure game where you try to save the planet from proof of work. Um, and then... Um, uh, yes, I'm also working on a lot of time theory stuff. So there's a key piece of post-Kantian philosophy by Anna Greenspan, which is coming out as a book. Uh, it used to be a, it was a PhD thesis 20 years ago. And so I'm involved in writing the, the foreword for that, where we've been developing this kind of uh, philosophy of blockchain temporality a little bit further. So that'll go on the Zero Excellent website very soon. Um, writing a book about proof of work. Uh, publishers, get in touch. Um, and uh, yeah, going, giving a talk on the human side of speculative manias at Unsound Festival in Krakow in a couple of weeks uh, called Profit Motives. And you can find the Salon stuff on 0xSalon, 0xSalon.pubpubpub.org. And my personal website is Wasim, W-A-S-S-I-M.pubpub.org.
Yeah. So um, thanks a lot. I think there's there's so much uh, exciting stuff to be following. Uh, I love the theater, the interactive game sort of approach, and uh, I think you know, even there, uh, it's such a it's an interesting point of departure to conduct more ethnographic research and and kind of get to the bottom of of what these communities are about. And it's ultimately all about centering the human again in these decentralized networks. Absolutely. Um, so I think with that, I would just like to thank you, Wazim, for for joining us and. Being agreeing to be part of this discussion today. Uh, I'd also like to uh, thank anybody and everybody who's joined uh, in the audience today. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. And if you have any feedback on the format of these discussions, as we said, we're just starting out. We would love to hear about that. Um, we are going to be in touch about a second session that we are planning to organize uh, in one month's time. So uh, stay tuned for that and also be in touch in case we release this publicly as per Kelsey's producing and editing skills. Um, yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you, Kelsey, for trying this <laughs> with yeah. me. And thanks, Tara and Kelsey, for, for the invite and for setting it up. This is great, great initiative to see. Great to be in touch. And uh, we'll share the pain of time zones. So we're kind of triaging between um, Australia is in the mix, um, the European Union and uh, and the US. So we'll, it'll change times. Tem temporal governance. <laughs> About meeting, exactly. Cool. We're thanks operating on parallel time chains. <laughs> no. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye-bye. So thank you again uh, to our guests, Wasim Al-Sindi, uh, as well as co-organizers Tara Merck and Sent Hostin. Uh, and thank you, our listeners, for joining us for this episode of Mint and Burn. You can check out the show notes, including links to further research at rmitblockchain.io.